strategy, design, marketing, UX, digital, development. This is Agencies That Build. This show is dedicated to leaders and teams that design and deploy in the digital world. My name is Jesse, and I'm a marketer and an agency owner. And I'm Varun. I'm not a marketer, but a coder and an agency partner. This show is sponsored by Together We Ship. On a mission to help agencies grow. All right, rock on. Varun, my friend, how are you? Looking very summery today. Yeah, I know. Of course, we are in 80 degrees. So, yeah, it's, it's a great, great, uh, I think, start for the summer for us here in Boston. And finally, this weekend, I had, I, I went to a concert and a long, long time. I'm so jazzed up right now. You know, it is awesome experience. No COVID, you know, it was full of crowds. So I had just an experience, like experience of like last 10 years, never had something like that. So it was wonderful. Now you have to tell us who you saw. And I'm sure our guest is curious as well. <laughs> well, <laughs> it was, yeah, it was um, a singer from, uh, from, from India. So nice. he was singing more of a Bollywood songs, Bollywood music. But um, yeah, it was just an amazing experience to see people full of energy and, you know, nothing related to, you know, what we're going to talk about, yes, but I just wanted to share after a long time, you know, <laughs> we have been through this situation of, you know, last three years, no gathering, but now it was amazing to see that. A little bit of normalcy, so, yeah. and uh, the heat has arrived early here in the East Coast. So let me introduce our, our today's guest who I'm excited to talk to, and then maybe he can share, he's West Coast based, if I'm not mistaken. Um, he's an author, a speaker, a co-founder and CEO of uh, at Emerge. Welcome Jonathan Hensley to the podcast. Are you guys experiencing yes. a heat wave as well? <laughs> uh, quite the opposite. It is pouring rain in about the 50s, uh, in the 50s here. So um, not nearly as nice as it sounds over there. Well, I... Uh, yeah, it's, it's, uh, we can't complain. <laughs> so, but this was great. Thanks for joining us. Um, you're, you're based in Portland, correct? If I, I am. Yeah. Okay. So good. So we're both at the top of the States here. One a little wetter than other. Usually it's pouring by this time in May, but anyways, so, uh, myth busting question. So we're going to start off with our usual, you know, what sort of myth would you like to bust or what misconception would you like to clear up? Um, or something you'd like to set the record straight on. And I know your myth ahead of time, do me a favor. And before you share it, provide a little bit of context on who you guys are and what you specialize, because I think that'll make you much more, um, it, it will allow us to dive deeper into why your myth is your myth. Sure. Uh, well, first off again, uh, Jesse and Vern, thank you so much for having me on the show. And to give everyone listening a little bit of context uh, to what, um, we do and why this myth is important to me is Emerge has been around for over 20 years and we focus on digital products and services. So we work with clients, both startups and Fortune 100 brands to help them uh, design and develop their digital products and services that they're bringing to market. And so within the scope of that space, um, there's a couple of myths that really can cause a lot of havoc, though this one in particular is is something that we run into a lot. So the myth that I'd like to bust is this idea of fail fast and fail often. 
It's uh, one of those things that is used a lot within the product space to talk about how we should iteratively drive innovation and improvement, but is also extremely dangerous when it is implemented as a tool for in uh, a way of, of thinking in an organization and we to remove accountability uh, in the organization for performance. And so I think it's really important that we understand the intentions of this idea of fail fast, fail often, and what it really means in an organization so it can be used effectively. So what does that mean? What do you think should be the right way to do it? Well, I think one of the key things is fail fast, fail often is really meant to be a inspire a culture of experimentation and innovation in very incremental ways. And so it really should be used in such a way where you are not... Failure is not the objective of any organization, but to learn is critical to every organization. And so we have to look at fail fast and fail often as a mechanism for learning and not a methodology that uses it in the wrong way can erode that accountability. So when we really look at it through its uh, truest intention, if we can focus on how we can experiment with new ideas or processes uh, or the way that we empower teams, we can then really look at how we drive incremental outcomes and create new value in our organizations or in the products and services that we're help create or promote. What's your, I'm going to get really specific. How, how do you guys do that? You know, I, obviously there's agile methodologies. There's other, I'm sure there's other ones that I'm not as familiar with, you know, was it, how did you get to the point where you are now where you've implemented that within your your teams like how do you tell us a little bit about give us some of the special sauce on how you actually do that and, and manage against it even more importantly sure well agile is actually a fantastic example because a lot of times you'll hear uh, organizations talk about wanting to be more agile or follow an agile methodology but usually what happens is is it's an ex uh, then turns into the negative side of it is Agile starts to become fragmented from strategy. And, uh, you know, in essence of agile, you still have to do the, the strategic and the planning work ahead to effectively run an agile team or organization. And so when that gets fragmented or misaligned, you start to see things fall apart and the teams are no longer effective or actually producing critical outcomes. So when we see that kind of methodology creep in, all of a sudden, well, we're being agile. So the failure is okay. It becomes an excusable thing versus understanding that agile is meant to be about a continuous improvement and learning approach to more effective collaboration and delivery. And so that essence gets missed all the time. And so when you have proper planning based on that intention and for strategy, you have checkpoints that you get to validate. You know, are we moving towards the intended outcome? Does this help us move towards our long-term objective? Are we solving the problems in the right way at the right time in order to create customer value? And so when you start to find these things uh, become fragmented or generalized without understanding their true intent, they can just wreak havoc on an organization, small or big. I think it, it makes a lot of sense. And the way you are describing it, it's more like a mind mind shift change that you need to change the mindset of how you approach the, the product development or, or working for any organization. 
when they say fail fast, um, you know, that doesn't mean that you, the failure is acceptable. It's, it should mean that, you know, fa- failure is okay as long as you are learning from it, as long as you are objectively deciding how this path or this road will take us. And this is what the possible outcomes are. And if we get to this outcome, this is a learning from us versus this outcome, this could be learned from that. And from that, we can decide the path forward. Is that what it means? Absolutely. Because once you you have a learning culture in place and you can start to really think about how you implement, you know, the uh, insights that come from each experimentation or each failure, you need to also have a clear way of how that knowledge is then distributed across the company to collect to help everyone level up. How do you actually help them become more successful from that? If the failure is accepted and then shelved, then you just keep moving forward without really clear insight that is gained from that in a way to help actually everyone in the organization move forward then what was the point of the, of the failure to begin with? And okay. so you really have to have clear intention with that. Since, well, don't want to put you on the spot, but do you have any story to share to give us like practical real life scenario of how you did some project or an engagement with a client where failure was not the expected outcome and how you use that as a learning and help them move forward? Absolutely. So we have a client in the healthcare industry uh, who, as an example, and so they had struggled uh, for years uh, to uh, produce a, a new website for their hospital group. And so one of the challenges with that was they had very ambitious goals and the initiative itself was failing again and again. And they kept saying, well, you know, that's okay because you know we're we have a, an open culture to failure and we're open to you know uh, innovating. But it had been years since they'd ever actually deployed an effective uh, website, and so we came in and really helped them understand. Let's reset for the perspective here, and so what we started to do is implement micro ex- uh, experiments. Let's contain the lessons that we need to learn in these micro experiments so we can learn from your audiences and your different stakeholders exactly what we need in order to help you move the the project and the business forward um, successfully. And so we ended up developing prototypes and doing different rounds of user testing where we had a safe place for failure without exposing the entire organization or stalling out the entire department that was trying to produce this new uh, web property and bring it to market. And so through that iterative uh, experimentation, testing and validation, we were able to verify what we knew uh, from the client and we were able to identify where the gaps were and where we needed to start to really solve problems uh, more effectively to deliver a better experience. And because of that, we were able to project how we could get to that outcome with confidence and success as we went forward. So that reframing of experimentation and then bringing that through those insights into the entirety of the process became transformational. And we unlocked a project that had been uh, stuck for years. You give us an example of a, of a micro experiment or, I mean, that's such an interesting way to 
to think about it. You know, our audience is a little bit of a little bit of everybody. When you think about it, obviously I'm coming at it from a marketing perspective. There's different AB testing and things like that you would do or various vaporwares that you're going to offer depending on the different site that you're building. But as you're talking about this, this fail fast and getting the right information, especially when it comes to product development, like if you have some kind of general examples that you would, that you could share and how to approach some of those, you know, I like that term micro experiment. It makes a lot of sense in terms of how you approach this, any sort of examples that you could share that might be useful for, for folks. Absolutely. So, I mean, you mentioned AB testing, so I'm just going to use that as an example to parallel uh, my part, but you know, A-B testing is one of those things. It's great because you experiment on one facet and, and, you know, show the contrast between the different options of A and B, but it requires a certain amount of volume to bring statistical relevance and, you know, really be able to highlight impact of the work that you're doing or how to present that, the value of that work back to uh, a client. And so when we look at, at micro experiments, we're looking at how can we collect that information or that insight much faster and uh, in smaller increments. And so what we usually will target is what's a very specific moment or flow within the customer experience that we need to put emphasis on and gather more insight for the product. So, you know, if we're thinking of a website, think of maybe a registration process, just something that, you know, everybody listening can, can connect with, or think of, you know, another common feature you might run into and being able to just quickly paper prototype that uh, we're in low fidelity and then being able to sit down and do, uh, you know, um, walk through in interviews with those that match your ideal target customer. And I, the emphasis I have to put on there is when you're selecting those participants, they need to be not just generalizing the persona that you're targeting. You need to have done the work to develop um, a mental model of your user. So you understand not just kind of gen- generally what their demographics are or general psychographics are, but we need to know more about them. We need to actually understand not just what they we think they want to do, but we need to understand their motivations, what drives their behavior. And so that's in product where we actually create mental models, taking personas another step further uh, into detail. And so that allows us enough information to hyper-target the right participants and to run those micro experiences where we can get with a very small group of participants, very highly impactful and accurate uh, data to be able to move uh, a a product forward. Going back to the the fail fast piece of it, how do you, how have you found how to define failure, I guess is, is the question, you know? when you're, when you're doing experience, obviously there's, there's one that's better than the other, you know, there's a clear winner in those cases, but it's not always clear sometimes if something worked or it didn't work. How have you guys, have you dealt with that throughout this, this process? So we look at failure. There's obviously complete failure, which everyone can relate to. I think pretty the clear. other facet <laughs> of it, yeah, of it is, um, that is more subjective. It, um, look at failure through the lens of underperformance. So what is underperforming really look like within the context of either somebody completing a, a task or a step? You know, there has to be some way to break that down and to look at what is contributing to that um, 
And then you have to have clarity of like, well, what's the intended outcome? And is that intended outcome realistic? So if somebody says, well, I want 100% of our users to do X, well, that's a completely unrealistic thing. So you will have 100% underperformance, you know, uh, almost every time. There's very few cases where you can actually attribute 100% success. However, um, something like making sure you have clear baselines of your current state and then being able to define your intended outcome, you know, gives you a true honest picture of, well, here's where we are today. Here's where we want to be. Now here's how I can measure performance improvement or um, the seeing performance degrade over time. And so it is important to make sure that you have that clarity because it is subjective and you need to make sure you do the work to remove that subjectivity out of uh, the eyes of both the team as well as the client. So it goes back to, you know, in the, in the process, it's clear goals, you know, let's say using agile again, it's clear goals per sprint, clear achievements per sprint. It's understanding how this is rolling into the larger initiatives and the strategy that you've put in place. You know, it's, it's, simple as I say it very simply we know in reality that's not always the case but it's um would you say that that's accurate I see Varun yeah, in practice, a bit to ask a question too <laughs> you know in its essence it is simple but it's rarely followed or practiced in in uh to completion and so that's the challenge that that we see and certain things you know like strategy are still very subjective and so when you say you're benchmarking against outcomes or, you know, looking at how this ladders into your strategy, that's another perfect example of, well, what makes a good strategy good and what's the difference and what does a great strategy need to encompass at its, at its core? Um, and these things are, are not very well articulated or defined for, for most organizations. And so there's a lot of incredible discipline and experience is necessary sometimes to define those things well. In that case, talking about strategy, how do you, well, can you, can you talk about a little bit on what is strategy and what isn't, what is not? Because that is, I remember one of the things that we talked earlier as well. It would be interesting to hear your perspective on how do you define the strategy in the first place? Sure. Let me answer that in a couple of ways. The first is, let me just define what I think the, the definition of strategy is. And, and I think a great strategy or product strategy defines the value you want to create in a succinct and tangible way, where to focus, why you're going to focus in that way, and what it will take to achieve it. And I think oftentimes there is um, a misconception. Strategy are things like um, goals or planning which has very little to do with strategy or it's forecasting or it's people's vision or ambition. And so those things are facets that are, that are added to strategy, but they're not strategy. And so that, that confusion uh, is really a, a thing that struggle uh, for so many businesses at in all sides. And I think it's a massive deficit within the, the agency space as a whole um, that we do not correct often enough. And so you have to be very careful how that's termed. Strategy at its essence, product side, and I'll I'll focus there because there's obviously overarching like business strategy and 
I'm not a marketer, so I can't talk about the, you know, the foundations of market strategy in the same way. But when we think about product strategy, you know, we really have to make sure there's, there's five major components that have to be achieved and they have to be done incredibly well uh, to create successful products. So the first is vision. But when I talk about vision not being strategy, is that because it's one component of strategy? It is important. And oftentimes it is, it's not like a company vision statement. It has to be something that gives clear direction of where the, the product will take the company five years, 10 years from now. And it also has to be measurable. And so oftentimes that piece alone is left inconsistent where it's, it's some sort of ambitious goal and destination, but it's left to interpretation by those who, who read that. What does that mean? You know, and, and so it's like, if I say, we want to be the number one brand, you know, in our category. Well, number one by, by volume of sales, by customer satisfaction, you know, by um, brand impression. I mean, what, what, is, what is the metric that you define being the best at? You know, what does that look like? And so that ambiguity becomes very difficult to anchor a strategy to um, right there. The second part would be is what's the challenge? that you're solving, meaning what's the current state in the, in the marketplace for your customer that you are attempting to solve and do you understand it in all of its complexity and intricacies? And how does that impact your, your target customer and, and client? You need to have that understanding and context if you're going to attempt to solve that problem effectively. Second part or to that is then with that definition, it gets into understanding that mental model, what drives somebody behavior to deciding to resolve that situation or challenge. And then that takes us to the third piece of strategy that's really critical, which is outcomes. What is the near-term outcome that we need to achieve both for the business as well as for the customer? And a lot of strategic frameworks focus on one or the other, and they don't look at them together in which one you know, you can't have one without the other. So you need to be looking at them collectively. Because um, if you pick one and it's not in alignment with that other outcome, you know, I wouldn't want to do this X for customers, but if you don't have the resources, skills, or capacity to do that, drive the outcome for the business, or you're not going to create uh, a work stream to get there, you're already in conflict and the chances of you succeeding on delivering on that strategy become, you know, uh, completely uh, and maybe unrealistic. And so it's really important that we have those outcomes so we know what are we trying to achieve near term to get us to that long-term outcome if we solve this problem effectively. And then fourth is what's the approach that we're going to take? How are we going to approach doing this with our expertise, insights, and uh, constrained resources in a way that creates value and differentiates from the competition and then how will we measure that progress going forward? So great strategy has to encompass at a minimum those five. And without those five doing larger, you know, things around, you know, positioning products, uh, market strategies, uh, defined pricing strategies and other things become much, much more difficult because you do not have the grounding components that drive those other areas of, of the product or business. And so that becomes an essential piece if you want to move things forward. In, in that context, I mean, if I want to, so you have shared a great 
explanation of how strategy works. If I want to use that idea and thought into practical sense, can you explain to us how did that help you, your business, uh, you know, use some of these concepts and help grow? Uh, maybe we start with how did you get into the business? How have you grown? And how have these principles around strategy helped you, you know, with that growth? Because you have clearly, you know, grew over time. Um, so helping a product shop or a client with their product strategy and marketing and promotion is one thing. But from a service company's perspective, how can these ideas help, you know, define them and help them grow? Sure. So, I mean, aside from doing this for our clients, I mean, we, you know, we follow the same practices. And so having a clear strategy and approach to these things, it's evolved since I got into the industry. I mean, I got into the, you know, the industry in the mid nineties. Um, it was an entirely different landscape. I mean, at that time, the internet was still the wild, wild west. Uh, smartphones didn't exist. You know, it was a very different landscape and the type of work that we were doing was completely different than the work that we do today. You know, fast forward and you have the, the dot-com, uh, you know, bubble burst and, you know, the landscape changes again. Time to revisit the strategy, time to relook at, well, what's the problem now that needs to be solved and what approaches can we, you know, look solving that? Has our, has our core customer changed? Has our businesses evolved? Are we, you know, and so, the, I think one thing that's important maybe to highlight here is that as we've gone through it, we've learned from our own experience and, and also realized very uh, clearly that, you know, strategy is not that one-time thing, but it's episodic. It has to happen as a continuing practice inside the business uh, ongoing and depending on how fast you're trying to grow or in a, evolve in the market will determine how often you have to be working through those steps of strategy and continually ensuring that they're in alignment with what the market is asking for and demanding. And so for ourselves, we've had to continuously pivot the organization. I think we're on our fifth iteration of the company over the last 20 plus years to adjust and stay relevant and resilient to the changes in technology and the market and what customers need in order to thrive. The essence of what we do hasn't changed, but how we do it and the types of customers we're, we're doing it for today have completely evolved because that strategy has had to evolve to um, following that, that same process. And so that's been key to growth. You know, we've, we've made plenty of mistakes along the way as anybody does uh, to, but having that discipline of going through that process has helped us take the learnings from those failures and then reevaluate those strategies so that we have confidence in moving forward successfully. Have you always been in the product development space or you changed things around and now you are doing a lot of product dev, but before that, how were, what were you doing and how, and what made you move into products? I actually started in the product space. Uh, you know, when the company was first founded, we were, you know, focused on product and platforms. And we were really in this innovation space, uh, being just at the time that we were coming, you know, that the company was founded. Over a period of time, we ended up um, moving the company uh, right into the middle of, of the marketing uh, space or a good part of it. We never stopped doing product, but 
the lines between product and what was happening in marketing got uh, really blurry for us for a long time um, as the technology evolved. And that, I think that happened for a lot of people. That was a, a kind of an industry-wide uh, you know, thing that happened. And so we had the opportunity at that point to really branch out and start to partner with some of the uh, you know, best and brightest minds in the advertising and marketing world through these larger agency relationships all over the world. And that led us to being able to do some really groundbreaking, uh, you know, work for, for some amazing brands, which we, we love. As we went through another iteration of the company, we realized, you know, as much as that was fantastic uh, work and those relationships were wonderful, we actually took a four-year uh, process to actually divest ourselves out of that space and bring ourselves back to our core of product. And so that was a really hard choice for us. Uh, you know, we were growing and, and thriving in that space, but we saw that the passion and the core of the company was still in the roots of where we started, which was in product. And the definition and lines between what was happening in the digital space between product and, and marketing were getting really clear again. And so we started to, you know, make that conscious choice to shift the business and, uh, and, and, you know, and really just put an emphasis on what we do best. And so that's been our trajectory now, but that was an evolution of going through that strategic process and really looking at if we understand the current state, we understand the problems we can solve, where can we create the most impact and value and how will that drive us forward towards our long-term objectives and our near-term outcomes. And, you know, some of those things were, were quick and easy wins. And some of them, you know, were, took years in the making, um, following a strategic, you know, that discipline to make sure we did it um, in, a, in a constructive and positive way for the business and for our clients. What would you say is your biggest, I'm going to ask a tip. I'm going to use that word, you know, uh, coming out of that process. We've talked to a number of agencies. It's interesting how many of them stick with where their core is and how, you know, they view expansion in terms of the different areas and branching out, you know, as you, I like that word that divested back into your core product. What would you say if companies or, or, or agencies are looking to do that? What was, you know, your biggest tip or something that you learned that was like, that you didn't realize you're like, Oh, this is a game changer for us. You know, something yeah. I mean, I can, or maybe the opposite mistake. Don't do this, you know, don't ever, you know, mix, <laughs> Coke and Pepsi together or something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Boy, I I bet you there's a bunch of things we could dive into, but the one that comes top of mind for me is really, I think that as you start to build an agency and you start to see growth and success, you try to, you start to expand or offer things um, or to different clients and markets, and you lo- you can, it's easy to lose focus. And I think that it, even though we were seeing growth and success, we lost focus as a, as a company. And one of the one things that we cannot buy back is time. And so that time being spent on, on staying true to our core and staying hyper-focused uh, with our, our core customer and working in those, um, being in that community, is would have been really powerful for us. I don't have any regrets because I've learned those lessons, but I think, you know, to anybody listening, I would say, you know, you really should weigh that because I think we try to, well, I know we tried to, you know, serve all of our customers. And then all of a sudden 
we were serving customers across a dozen industries and we had lost that focus in, in, uh, in edge and our differentiation, uh, you know, started to, to falter. And, you know, in the industry sp space, you know, there's a lot of noise. I mean, there's over 55,000 professional service agencies in the United States. So, you know, you might be competing with the shop of one or two people versus, uh, you know, 200. And so we realized that, you know, in order to be able to not fall into the fray or to the noise of, of the industry, um, that, uh, that we had to take a step back. And I think that's a really easy thing to do uh, and, and something that's really hard. We, there's a lot of, um, well, let's look at what the, what the big agencies are doing or let's, and let's see how they do it. But their differentiation is that they are the big agency and that they can do all of these things. And so they're poor examples for the rest of us. And when you have so many brilliant creative minds in this industry, the other challenge is, is we're, there tends to be a lot of um, we're competing with ourselves in the industry versus sometimes I think and ending up realizing that we have to be more in service of the customer. And so for us that we realized we had fallen into that a bit and needed to take that step back and really focus only on the customer as we moved forward and not pay attention as much to what's happening around us. Yeah, we don't talk about regrets because there's no point, you know, when yeah. we, we chat with owners, it's more like, what are the things that you learn from a mistake standpoint? So we totally hear you on that because it's, you know, it's a, it's why, why bother? It's a wasted effort in some cases to have the regret. Um, but appreciate that. So Rune, did you have a question? Otherwise, I yeah. have another one. Yeah. I, I just wanted to touch briefly on, um, you mentioned when you got into the fray of, uh, so many people doing so many things. And when you see yourself competing against people all over the place, taking a step back is a great idea. I think that is difficult as well. But in your case, how then you, so I guess my direct question is what differentiator did you find for yourself? Uh, what, like, did you, did you start uh, targeting the customers based on their size or technology or I mean how do you what is your specialization in that case so I think that, I mean this this opens up I, I think a fantastic topic on a lot of differentiation at least in in what I've been exposed to has been is propositioned as like what's that one thing that you do differently or better than anybody else and the challenge is when you have so many people in the industry and so many brilliant people in the industry, it's next to impossible, not saying it is impossible, but it's extremely difficult to find that one thing. And one of the things that I learned through the years was that the best product and brand companies that we worked with, it wasn't about one thing. And so I think that is important to call out because a lot of the materials out there focus on, well, what's that one thing? What's the one thing? And it's like, well, there's not one thing usually. And so this kind of goes back to the strategic, uh, you know, foundation of, of an organization or a product is like, well, okay, let's talk about two core facets and then what that looks like to differentiate yourself. So from a product perspective and how we had to then embrace it as our business as a product. 
in essence, to, to our clients is that there's two facets we had to resolve. What's the psychological need that we fulfill and what's the functional need that we fulfill for a client? So, you know, and by understanding that we could understand specifically who within the market that we're interested in connecting with might resonate or need our services the most. Then we could start to focus on the other aspect of it is, well, what are the attributes that they need to have that psychological need fulfilled and that, that functional need. So how, what kind of staff do we need to have to do that? How, what do our processes need to look like? How do we need to communicate effectively to do that? You know, it, it brings on a whole series of things. And so when I think the best things in the agency space, especially that is, uh, could be taken from product is understand what attributes that you can combine to differentiate yourself. So instead of that one thing, it's, well, how do I do this, you know, these things? And when I do those with our, that becomes our special secret sauce that is very difficult to replicate because one thing is easy to, to, to copy, but three or four things combined in a unique way are very difficult to copy. And that gives you actually true competitive advantage. It gives you lead time in the market. And so that is, I think, a really important perspective. And so one, I'll, I'll, I'll give an example um, there's a company called Rackspace. They uh, do managed hosting services, and they recognized early on um, that, you know, that managing services, you know, their, their psychological need was they had to provide people peace of mind. And everything else at the time, for the most part, was self-managed. And that peace of mind was worth a premium. And then, well, how do you provide peace of mind? And they could start to look at what are the attributes of providing that managed service? And so one of the attributes that they recognize is most of the time, if you would call into a call center, you were just getting routed through a ticketing process. No one was really empowered to solve your problem. They recognize, well, what if we made sure that every single person that picked up the phone was empowered to solve your problem and we guaranteed a person from your team will pick up the phone within three rings. And that plus a handful of other things became known as fanatical support. And that fanatical support took a startup to become a multi-billion dollar hosting company because people wanted that peace of mind. And they knew exactly the attributes and how they could come together in a unique way that they could provide to do that in a differentiated. And so there's plenty of other managed service offerings out there. Nobody does it just like Rex because it's really, really hard to replicate. And so in the agency world, I think it's, it's an incredibly powerful lesson when you think of, well, what are the defining attributes that make up our, our agency, our firm, and how could we combine those in a unique way that creates value for our core customer so that we can stay competitive? And I think that's, that's really key because their portfolio will, will evolve, the market will evolve, but if you know what the attributes of your business are, you have, you are much, much more resilient. Great point. I think that it makes a lot of sense. You know, it's not one thing. It's a combination of few that will make you unique and that will be hard, hard to replicate. I think that's a great learning. I want to shift gears a little bit and want to talk about um, some cultural aspects of your agency. How, how, how is your culture? How do you keep your team employees motivated in this 
crazy environment we are living in right now. I mean, where Amazons and all these Google, Facebook are paying, you know, three times the salaries that people used to or are used to earn before. Like, what is keeping people, you know, how what is keeping your employees stay with you and not flooding to another company or big corps? Well, I think a couple of things. One, you know, we have really tried very hard to make sure that we build um, an empowered culture. So what I mean by that is that our team has incredible enemy to solve problems, to make decisions. And we lead from a bottom-up methodology at Emerge. So we're, myself being the CEO, I'm a servant to my team. You know, we're, I'm a big believer in servant leadership and that, you know, I exist in my role to enable them to do great work. And I hope that they all feel that. And, and so that, but I think that's a really important thing is that if they can be empowered and you're a great designer or a great engineer um, or, or, project, uh, or product manager that you have that ability to realize you're supported and that through that, we can help you grow in your career we can help you make an impact through the projects that you work on and that um, you're always going to be heard and appreciated. And so some of the bigger companies can offer incredible opportunities, but they may not provide that type of culture and able to be in that small team environment is, is very advantageous. And I think sought after by our employees. And so um, I'm incredibly grateful that they give us those opportunities to serve them and to do that. And so that's the approach that, that my business partner and I take in, in creating the culture, the foundation for that culture that we have. I think that's a great point. And I think this is not easy to do. It requires a lot of patience to, you know, to have, to, to, to work with people who are struggling and giving that, giving them that space and autonomy I was, you know, reading some uh, research somewhere. Like, what is, what is that that keeps you happy? People happy in general. Autonomy is one of the, you know, top one of the choices that people who have the autonomy would be, you know, would feel more happy in general than anything else. So that does, you know, make a lot of sense when people have that freedom and independence to take decisions and use you um, as a mentor or somebody who can help. Um, them with the with the process and the servant. Uh, you said the servant leadership. It's a, it's a I think great topic in itself to talk about. You know, um, we won't cover it now, but something that I would definitely um, like to deal in the, or, or talk about at some point. But no, I haven't um, heard that phrase. But it makes it's we we've talked to a lot of agency owners who focus on that. I like I like that approach. I like how simply. You've put it as well that, you know, you're there to help them do good work, enable them to do good work. So that's, that's good. So great. Well, um, what, what, I know you said you started off in the, you know, let's talk about you for, for a quick minute. You started off a little bit in, in product. Is this, what brought you to product to begin with? You know, tell us a little bit about your, your story. Sure. So, um, I'm originally from the Bay Area. I grew up down there. And uh, so I just happened to be a perfect age at the right time in the Bay Area where, you know, the whole Silicon Valley culture and and tech community was, you know, completely 
thriving and it was absolutely one of the most intoxicating things for a young nerd to be a part of, um, you know? And so it was a time in the culture there where I could walk down to a user group with, you know, at, uh, you know, across from Stanford university or down by the Hewlett Packard, you know, campus. And I could meet a bunch of, you know, computer engineers who would give me parts and I could go build a computer at home and start to, you know, um, tinker and, and figure things out. And so I was just, I happened to be an extremely curious kid in that way and, and had an opportunity to do that. And it's something that, uh, you know, was encouraged. And then I fell in love with software at a very, really, very, uh, you know, early age. And what really then got me is, um, I, I grew up in a family of, um, my mother's a psychologist. And so, these conversations would happen uh, with uh, family and with friends about, you know, well, how does technology uh, change the way we live and work? And so at a very early age, that became just an insatiable curiosity for me. So I started playing with the technology and then I started wondering how it worked with people. And, you know, I had the benefit of, you know, sitting in coffee shops and watching people, you know, do these things and overhearing these conversations. And it just, it's something that never, it, once that, that wheel started being for me, it just never stopped. And it's only gotten, I think that curiosity has only gotten stronger, um, even though I've been doing it for, or in that space unofficially for over 30 years. So it's, really for me, that's still that inspiring piece. I, I just completely get hooked on, you know, a new technology or how a technology changes as it matures over time, the way that we live and work and that curiosity of informing human behavior or enabling somebody to do something that otherwise was never possible, just um, completely captures my imagination. I feel like that's a whole nother podcast because we could sit here and talk about the evolution of cell phones or, you know, digital media and, and all these things. That would be a, a fun topic. So tell us as we as we ramp our conversation down here, what's exciting you about the future? What are you looking forward to in the future? You know, it could be personal, it could be professional, or a little bit of both, maybe. Well, at a on a professional level, I would say one of the things I'm really excited right now is I feel like there is a, we're in an inflection point where um, there are a lot of technologies that are hitting a maturity point that we're starting to really build more sustained and deeper practices in understanding uh, human behavior and technology together. We're starting to see that in positive ways as well as negative ways. I think, you know, there's a lot of conversations around social platforms and the pros and cons of those things. Um, so I, I find that to be incredibly exciting to see these debates starting to happen, to start to see more insights and more codification of how do we use technology to empower people and understand, you know, the and project the implications of those behaviors over time. And so I think the fact that that conversation is really starting to pick up is really exciting to me because I think it's actually going to do far more innovation than we've seen uh, before, because there's going to be a, a much larger group of people who have an understanding of it and can start to implement it with their own creativity and their own 
uh, understanding of the different problems in, in their lives that they can start to solve. So for me, that's incredibly exciting. Um, and uh, on a personal level, it, it kind of dovetails in the same thing is that I'm, uh, you know, continuously um, really excited right now to not only be in the industry doing this work, but starting to help coach um, those product leaders and emerging leaders to help them understand some of these principles and skill sets so they can really, uh, you know, bring these ideas to fruition. So that, that side's been really exciting for me as well. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Jonathan. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's always interesting to see where our conversations lead as we're, we're chatting with folks. You always think it's going to end up in one direction and we actually didn't end up where I thought we were going to end up today. So that's, that's good. So appreciate your time. For those of you listening where you can find Jonathan, um, on, you're on the LinkedIn, both, uh, uh, both your company, uh, Emerge Interactive, and yourself. You're you're on the Twitter as well. Um, and EmergeInteractive.com is your website. So if folks are looking to connect with you. And I'll also, I know you've written a book. I want to give you a little shout out here. It's called Alignment. It's available on Amazon. Check it out. Um, for those of you listening, how's, so, you know, we didn't, we didn't even touch on that at all, but figured give you a little, little plug here at the end. So thank you so much it. for joining us. But, Thank you um, so much for having me. It's our pleasure. And, and that's it. So if you learned something today or laugh, tell somebody about the podcast. Thanks everyone. And see you next time. Thanks for listening. Find our other episodes on agencies that build.com. Plus we're listed anywhere you find your favorite podcast.